We'll be looking at Matthew uh, chapter 22 this morning, verses 1 through 14. If you have your Bibles, let me ask you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's times like this that, uh, that in a life of a congregation that bring out the wisdom of the tradition according to which we work through Scripture, taking one passage as it follows another passage, because this is the passage that was uh, set for us in terms of the series that we would be preaching on today. And so there's a sense in which the Father who called us and set His love upon us from from before the foundation of the world is the same one who timed and orchestrated all things so that we would come to this moment in our life together as a church to this passage. And so um, I want to say that Because we arrived at this passage during a very difficult season in the life and ministry of Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church. And so the questions that no doubt, some of the questions that no doubt were swirling in your mind this morning as you woke up may have included such things as why in the world would we come to worship when we are feeling so hurt and so confused perhaps so angry and so bitter? Why would we worship when we don't feel worshipful? Isn't that inauthentic or even hypocritical? Why would we, why should we, why would we self-consciously lift our eyes to behold our glorious hope when things feel so hopeless and hard? Isn't that living in denial? Isn't that just turning a blind eye to the ugliness of life together as sinners in a profoundly sinful world? In the midst of a world at war, a war that threatens to consume us even as it rages all around us, can we hear the voice And receive the invitation of our father, the king, to come to the wedding feast of his son. The critical question for us that has been being dealt with here in this passage going all the way back to the beginning of chapter 21. It is the question that is at the center of the gospel. It is the question that is at the center of Matthew's presentation of the gospel, it is the crucial question at the center of, of, and at the heart of life in this world is this, who do you see and say Jesus is? Not just in the good times, but in the very difficult times. Not just in the times that you understand, but in the times that we don't understand. Do we rightly recognize him? And in rightly recognizing him, do our affections and thoughts and words and deeds demonstrate 
a right response of humble obedience. For you see, when we have rightly recognized and are rightly responding, we find ourselves clothed in the wedding robes of Christ's righteousness and welcomed into the bounty and the beauty of the king's great love at the wedding banquet of his son. So my prayer is that you begin to understand, oh, this passage is appropriate for us in this season of our life. Read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, our Lord, our living Lord, for us, his people, at this time and in this place. So let us go to him by faith. So, Father, we come to this um, parable that you have taught through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we recognize that it is so uh, easy for us to be deafened and numbed to the word of your gospel, deafened by our own condition and numbed by our own circumstances. And so, Father, we pray that by the powerful working of your Spirit by which you grant life, that you would grant ears to hear and eyes to see, that we may behold your glory and marvel at your great love. For it is ours through Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. In February of last year, a young man and a young lady, late teens, early 20s, uh, were getting married. We love weddings, don't we? And uh, there are even some in our congregation who are wedding photographers. And so we know that the wedding shoots are huge. Bride and groom are trying to capture the beauty, the overflowing bounty of the moment. 
A good photographer not only catches the, the people and the context, but he is able or she is able to capture the affection in the hearts of the bride and the groom. And so it was in February of 2016 that this bride and groom invited a wedding photographer to document their love for one another. She, dressed in her beautiful wedding gown, and he in his fatigues, because he was a member of the Syrian army, and the hometown in which they had grown up was Homs, the third largest city in Syria, which just weeks and months before had been turned into a pile of rubble. And so, off they go with their wedding photographer into the ruins of Homs, Syria, to document their great love for each other in the context of great disaster. You can find them just by Googling uh, wedding photography homes Syria. It was in the February 2016 edition of the Atlantic magazine and some of the pictures overflowed and showed up in World Magazine. They're stunning pictures to look at. A young, healthy, strong man in love with his beautiful wife dressed in the white robes of the wedding in the midst of rubble. <laughs> what, is it mere sentimentality that led them to do that? Was it because they were so consumed by some romantic notion of love that it caused them to not see the hurt and the brokenness and the destruction around them? Given the way our culture has taught us to see reality, we might suspect that that's exactly what's happening. But no. By their testimony, they were engaging in a prophetic proclamation that life is stronger than death. I do not know, I tried to confirm, I do not know whether or not this couple is a, a Christian couple, but whether or not they are is almost beside the point because they are prophetically proclaiming in their fo photographs a truth that is made known about this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is that the love of the Father makes life in this world stronger than the death that seems so inevitable. The couple was embodying and proclaiming not only what Jesus' life embodied and proclaimed, but what Job's life embodied and proclaimed. It's important, and I have found it intriguing, 
that our order of worship was put together months ago. And did you notice that the meditation comes from Job? And the call to worship comes from Job. Job is so discouraged by Job chapter 6 that he says this, Oh, that I might have my request and God would fulfill my hope that it would please God just to crush me. Be done with it. That he would loose his hands and just cut me off. That would be my comfort by which he means my relief. And I would even exult in pain unsparing. Be done with it. Boy, we can relate. Can't we? In the course of one day, in the course of one day, Job receives four messages. Each message with a separate item of news. You've lost all of your livestock. Your business is gone. You've lost it. You can imagine how he must be reeling. And while he is reeling, he hears the second message. Your servants are gone. Your workforce destroyed. Not only is your business gone, but your hope for actually rebuilding it is gone. And while he's trying to make sense of this, he hears another message. Your ten children have all died at the hands of marauding invaders and natural catastrophes. You understand what is happening here. All hope for life and rebuilding after the storm has been destroyed. And he receives all of that news in the course of one day. So Job responds as we may respond he tears his clothes and he shaves his head in mourning. Because all is lost. <laughs> to make matters worse, he has friends like me. Who are so eager to come and help him understand and make sense of it all. Well, Job, if you had been smart, well, Job, if you had been faithful... And so we make it worse. And then comes the permission of the enemy to touch him himself. And so you know, he loses all health, he loses all strength, strength and he finds himself on an ash heap. His wife abandons him, encouraging him to curse God and give up and die. But Job is stubborn. We might even say steadfast. 
so that finally we hear pressed out of him by his circumstances this cry. I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There is no possible way that he could have known that by looking at his circumstances. There is zero in his circumstances that would lead him to say that. He has no friends that understand. His wife has abandoned him. His children are gone. He has zero reason to say what he said here in Job chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job knows prospectively, that is looking forward into time, by faith, what we know retrospectively, looking backward in time by faith, namely, that the redeeming God lives. He speaks, he promises, he acts with power to rescue and redeem. And so the follow-up question is this, knowing, knowing that is one thing. Can we recognize it when it appears in our circumstances? Remember what Mary and Martha said when Jesus came after three days of delay, after Lazarus had died. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And, they, and he says, do you believe in the resurrection? And she goes, of course I believe in the resurrection. We all believe in the resurrection. That's why we're here today. I believe in the resurrection, she says, that we will all rise in the end. And Jesus says to her, then recognize the resurrection because I am the resurrection and the life. Do we know do we know that our Redeemer lives in such a way that we would recognize our Redeemer? Do we know that we will be raised again from the dead in such a way that we would recognize resurrection when it appears in front of us? Or like me being far too caught up in the difficulties and distractions of, our, of my own condition and circumstances, do we dismiss it? Do we toss it on the desk to be dealt with at a later time? And so find ourselves dismissing the very thing for which we are so frantically and fretfully waiting and watching and working. The very thing that Job proclaims, bear with me, I'm going to have you track with me, but the very thing that Job proclaims in Job chapter 19, we hear expressed as reality in a letter written to people who are facing circumstances and are in a condition that none of us have ever known. 
though perhaps we may know it sooner than we like. In the opening of the letter to the Hebrews, a people that we think was scattered throughout Asia facing severe persecution, the writer says this, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What Job looked forward to, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, has already happened. That the Redeemer that Job looked forward to, in fact, has lived and has stood upon the earth and has acted powerfully. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of that God to whom Job clung with such desperate faith. It's important that you understand and that you track with me because that is the context. The cry, the cry for mercy, the cry for redemption of Job on the one hand and the provision of it on the other hand in the person of Jesus Christ. Because that is the context within which we hear this parable of the wedding feast. You see, you remember Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem as the long sought after, the long waited for, the long watched for king. And he comes and he is welcomed as such. And Jesus has demonstrated and prophetically proclaimed, I am he, I am the one whom you have been watching for and waiting for. He cleanses the temple and he curses the fig tree as a, as a demonstration that he is the one for whom the fig tree was planted. He is the one for whom the temple is built. He is the one. He is the authentic one, the appointed one, the sealed one, the anointed one. He is the one who comes in the, with the authority of the creator and reigning king, our Father God. Which is exactly why then the religious experts turn around and say, who do you think you are? By what authority do you come here? And so Jesus launches into these parables about, about rightly responding to the revelation of the Son and rightly recognizing the Son, which he concludes here with his parable of the wedding feast. And so you know the story. We've just read it. A king gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to all those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they said, they said uh, sorry, we're, we can't come right now. And so he said, surely they've misunderstood. And so he sent a second wave of servants. And they said, we, we understand that, but we're too busy. We have people to see and places to go. The world is falling, out, falling 
down around us. We have a lot of work to do. Quit distracting us with his invitation to the wedding. And so the invitation to the wedding banquet of the king's son is dismissed and rejected. We need to stop here in just a moment. Most of us have at one time and another received a wedding invitation. We feel the social pressure involved in receiving a wedding invitation. We recognize that going expresses one thing. We also recognize that not going expresses something else. So we wring our hands if we find ourselves unable to go. How do we respond rightly so as not to offend the bride and the groom, never mind their parents? And as difficult as that is for us, it pales in comparison to what's happening here. Because this is the invitation from the king to the citizenry for the celebration of his son's wedding. Failure to respond to the invitation and failure to go is not a mere social faux pas. It's not merely a missed opportunity. It's a protest. It's rebellion. It's treason, you see. Because it's a celebration of the king's rightful rule and reign. It's a celebration with him of his goodness. Why why in the world, why in the world would anybody do that? Why in the world would you not go to such a wedding given the consequences of not going? Why would anyone reject not only the offer of rescue, for example, from the difficulties of our condition and circumstances, never mind the possibility of a whole new condition and circumstances in which we know true healing and true wholeness and true prosperity and true flourishing. Why in the world would anybody reject something like that? Well, C.S. Lewis says, because we are far too satisfied making mud pies. I got, I got too much going on. I really just can't make the time. There was a concert last night. I just can't get out of bed and make it. It requires too much focus and energy. It's just easier to continue on as I am. I don't have time to take away for the frivolity of a wedding, of a party, of a banquet. Far too many things to do. Too many people to see, too many fires to put out, too many deadlines pressing upon me to meet. I've got to keep at work. I've got to keep at it. With all this war, with the world falling apart around me, with all the turmoil around me, threatening to breach the defensive boundaries I have built around me and my family, why would I risk my time and risk my attention away to something else and leave my family exposed and vulnerable. That just doesn't make sense. And so it is that we rationalize and explain why it is that the wise thing to do is to reject the invitation. 
In the midst of the turmoil of a world at war, winds, waves, blinding rain, loss of direction, we can't tell up from down and left from right, we cry out, don't we? Oh God, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. We even sing that as a congregation. Why? Because the turmoils of a world at war in which we find ourselves, and make no mistake, we are at war. Because the turmoils of this war in the midst of which we find ourselves living, in, the, in which we find ourselves engaged, we are forced to reckon with our limited strength. We are forced to recognize and reckon with our limited stamina and our limited perspective and our limited wisdom and our limited understanding and our limited control. We are forced to cry out, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. We are furthermore forced to reckon with the fact that not only are all of these things limited, but they are positively polluted and twisted so that whatever strength, stamina, perspective, wisdom, and understanding we are able to muster is untrustworthy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And our circumstances force us to reckon with these facts of our condition and our circumstances. And we come to the conclusion that we are not masters of our own fate. That we are not our own, but that we've been bought at a price. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Because in the midst of trouble, we are designed to cry out. Just like when our hand hits the hot eye of, an, of a stove and we draw it back in screaming so our soul is designed to draw back and cry out, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And he does, and he has. And he sends you an invitation, and then he sends you his servants. And he says, now come, the wedding banquet of my son is ready. Come. So to whom do we cry? To whom do we look? To whom do we flee for help in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of suffering? Where do we go in our hour of need, receiving the invitation of the king to the wedding banquet of his son? Are we so caught up in our frantic and fretful efforts to control our circumstances that we dismiss the invitation as irrelevant and untimely? And Tabidi Anvabwili is a pastor, say that ten times fast, is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he writes this, among the many things that we need during suffering, 
it seems to me that clarity of vision is most needful. And so as you walk back from the mailbox and you're flipping so quickly through your mail, like Fred Sanford, remember that? Bills, 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 wedding invitation, bills, bills. You find yourself throwing out the wedding invitation for which you have been waiting and watching and working for so long. We've been reading um, the story of Bob Childress, who is a Presbyterian missionary in the uh, southwest corner of Virginia. And uh, one day, we just read last night that Bob Childress was preaching on Job. And his theme was a word spoken in due season. And the writer says this, The message was this, Job's first tests were years of property, power, family, and the love of friends. His faith didn't depend on home or health or worldly applause, or the lack thereof. The secret, that is the ability to see and the willingness to look for God's hands in everything. Do you see God's hand in the full corn crib, the full smokehouse, and strong bodies? And do you still look for his hand in the storm or in the sickbed or when you lose something or by an open grave or the side of a suffering friend or in the hard breathing and the hot brow of a little child? If you are enjoying life's blessings, the hand of God is there. Rejoice and be glad. But if you are feeling life's losses, the hand of God is there too. Because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and carries us through very difficult times more and more into the presence of Jesus. In the midst of life's prosperity, life's busyness, life's blessings, life's difficulties, we have received brothers and sisters, an invitation. The invitation of the king to the wedding banquet of his son. Are we too busy? In heart, mind, or in life? Does it somehow feel strange to accept the invitation to celebrate the beauty and the bounty of our father's great love and the redemption by the gift of his son while the world seems to be crumbling around us? Or by faith do we recognize that that invitation that I just chucked is the invitation of the king to the wedding feast of the lamb who has conquered. And recognizing that by faith that is the invitation of the king, will we respond by going, by fleeing, by running to him? And do we recognize that by recognizing and responding to the invitation by faith, we are actually doing the one thing necessary for dealing well and living well in the midst of very difficult circumstances? You see, brothers and sisters, the weekly call to worship is how the Lord trains us to actually behold 
in the flesh, our living Redeemer, who stands upon the earth, who stands, in fact, in our very presence to sustain us and guide us and comfort us. So let us not throw the invitation out. Let us come and savor and celebrate the banquet. Oh, Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to not overlook the invitation, but to respond to the invitation, to come with expectation, with anticipation, with appetites ready to celebrate the goodness of your great, great love for us through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so strengthening us, Father, we pray that you would sustain us, for we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. Dan asked for prayer before the service for his um, quickly prepared half-baked sermon, but I think that the Lord's been working on that for three or four months as well, just like the order of worship. And I, I appreciate your uh, good word, Dan. Um, I, um, I also think that um, while I am very sentimental and I always cry at movies, um, perhaps Linda Krischke, um intended for that poem to be read in such a way. So, um, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord indeed have mercy. Um, and thank you for um, giving us clarity of vision, Dan. Um, as we respond to the preaching of the word, um, we do so by standing and singing the hymn found in your hymn books, All to Jesus I Surrender, hymn number 562.
may be seated. Was it uh, John Calvin who said the first response of faith is prayer? And we have the opportunity to go to spend some time going to the Lord in prayer again. Um, this is Mother's Day, and uh, I.